Welcome to The Way of Christ, a path for spiritual growth presented by Church of the Incarnation in Dallas, Texas. Each week, we will explore central topics of the Christian faith and practice, emphasizing what it means to be a member of a community committed to spiritual growth in Christ. Our focus for Season 1 is Mapping the Christian Faith, and Episode 9 is titled, What's Stopping Us? Part 2, Cultural Obstacles, a Critical Reading for Our Moment. This discussion is led by Father Joe Dewey and was originally recorded on November 5th, 2023. Let's review where we're going. We're in the ninth of 10 weeks on mapping the Christian faith. Just by way of review, we've, we've, we've said to put before you kind of a basic foundation of a, of a map of spiritual growth. We've asked, where are we going? We said, we're going to God. We've asked, how do we get there? We say we get there through Jesus Christ only, by Jesus Christ and by the power of his Holy Spirit. And we've asked certain questions along the way. How do you uh, continue to grow in this, uh, in this way? Will you grow in prayer and in reading of scripture and the sacraments? And then we've asked questions like, well, what's stopping us? What's stopping us? We're going to follow up on that question this morning. Last time we asked what's stopping us, we looked at sin. The answer of that was sin. And we spent a lot of time focusing on the internal dimensions of sin, particularly the the, uh, unruly nature of our wills, which seem to work against one another, our flesh, which is our corrupted will. And we talked about how our will needs to be conformed to the will of Christ. And there's a constant battle internally. But we also kind of gave way to the reality that there there, there are dimensions of sin and evil that are beyond the internal life, that are external to us, some of which is uh, the devil, the principalities of darkness, and others of which are are the world. Sometimes you hear that language, sin, uh, of, of, of the flesh, the world, and the devil. Today we're going to specifically focus on those external realities in our cultural sin, the culture of sin, the systems of our wills being manifest in institutions and certain ideas which have an external impact on us. So we're going to ask the question, what's stopping us? And we're going to look at that question from a 2023 Dallas, Texas perspective. But, but to do that, we're going, to, we're going to have to kind of trace a bit of a story. What's stopping us? Well, it's in fact, perhaps the elevation of self above God, even to the sacrifice of God, as we'll see. So focus on that language. So let's, let's, let's build a, a certain kind of theological foundation for what it is that I'm talking about, cultural sin. The first thing I want you to look at is from the book of Genesis, and to, to speak a little bit of this being a part of our very nature. In Genesis 1, 26 or 28, the, the culture mandate, the, as, as some theologians describe it, the, 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 the fact that human beings were made in God's image to do what? To rule and subdue, to be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth. Theologians will describe that part of what this means to be human is to just be people who make culture. We, we can't help but do it. We're city builders. We're people that, that externalize what it is we desire. We move towards our proper end. And in the work of building uh, uh, families first, making, you know, multiplying ourselves and ruling and subduing, we simply make culture. We can't help but do it. 
Human beings are culture makers. We either build good cities and cultures towards the glory of God or bad cities towards uh, the glory of self. You can see uh, the city that God seemingly is, is, uh, is building throughout the narrative in the, in the family of Abraham and his descendants, and ultimately through the, the monarchy of the king of, of David and his descendants and the community that is building around this temple. And it comes to a bit of a crescendo in the Old Testament in 1 Kings chapter 8. I have the text in front of you. It's the third text down on your handout. Excuse me, it's the second one down. I'm just going to read verse 20, which reads, Now the Lord has fulfilled the promise that he made, for I have risen in the place of my father David. This is Solomon speaking. I sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised and have built a house for his name the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. What you see in the temple building and the dedication of the temple by Solomon is a city organized in that Levitical system, which which has the holiest of places in the very center of the city. There being a place where priests and prophets were to live and ultimately a king who was to be the model example of one who obeys the law of God. This is a city. And in its intent, it is to be the city that shows the rest of the world what the kingdom of God is like, what God himself is like. It, at its core, is to be a good city, to reflect to the world that dominion of God, and ultimately to extend its life into uh, you know, the new covenant community, which is where the nations, the Gentiles, come in, streaming into this temple city, which is the good city that we're made to exist in, the good culture. You might say that culture is ordered by law, which shows us what is holy and what's unholy. It's ordered by a a way of worship. It's ordered in all these ways. This is what a city is made to look like. There are good examples of it. And then there are bad examples. What what are some of the bad examples of the, the cities in the Bible? Sometimes that city becomes the cities that Israel builds. Babylon is the prime example. I love that. Thank you, Scott. Yeah, Babylon. And in fact, it's in your text, which we see in Genesis 11. Here is the testament of the, those who are building this city. And they, this is the third text down on your handout. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and fire them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for martyr. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we shall be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. See, the city that they were building is to build a name for themselves. It's a city built upon the name of human beings to elevate self above God. Judges depicts this. There's a constant refrain in the book of Judges that the people, there was no king in the land. And does anybody want to finish the phrase? And they all did what was right in their own eyes. The elevation of self above God. The elevation and love of self even to the sacrifice or diminishment of God. 
See, human beings, we just, we build cities. It's what we do. We build cultures. It's what we do. We can't help it. It's an anthropological fact. The question is, what end, what, towards what end are these cities we're building? Are they, are they, what, what is the, the glory of these cities? So theologians have, have, have done a lot of work to try to make sense of the, the kinds of, of, of nature, the, the cultures and cities that we build. Chief among them, uh, one, of, one, one who's writing a, an apologetic that the Christians are not responsible for the fall of Rome is St. Augustine, who, who wrote this big book called The City of God in response to say, no, in fact, Christians were not the reason for the fall of Rome. But he introduces the, this kind of topic of the two cities. And he says these two cities simultaneously exist the city of God, built on a love of God, even to the sacrifice of self. It's all saints' day. We know that saints are saints because they love God even to the sacrifice of themselves. They're building the city of God. It's ordered around what Cicero called true religio, the sacrifice, just sacrifices to God. It bears out a love of neighbor. This, this builds a sense of charity. A true city, a true republic, a, a good city is one that has uh, an ordered life around a just sacrifice. And of course, the only just sacrifice is the one and only the Lord Jesus' just sacrifice to God. And so he is the he's one that establishes the proper city towards the proper end. But then there's this other city, the city of man. And the city of man is the one that loves self even to the diminishment and sacrifice of God. They are ordered around their loves as well. This city is ordered around a lust for power and praise of man. It's, it's ordered around the desire to elevate self above God. Okay? And there are liturgies for these two cities. You can imagine. So liturgies are, you know, the common practices, the work of the people that order their, 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 their time in such a way. And the, the city of God, of course, has a liturgy. We, we practice it here in the church, but, but we also practice it in our lives, the order of this map that we've talked about, this, this sense of, of a community of people ordered around the, the reading of Scripture and prayer, of, of service and sacrifice, in all these ways. But so too does the city of man have liturgies. I want to, I want to highlight the way in which uh, Augustine kind of describes this in Confessions. And I think I believe I have the uh, handout, for, a handout for you in uh, his book six in the Confessions. And he, he's talking about the way Olympias uh, is, uh, is this, this friend of his who loves God and wants to remain pure, but he's walking through the cities of the Roman Empire, and there is the gladiatorial games, which uh, are, are, you know, you know the movie Gladiator. You, you can imagine it's this barbarous uh, way of violent action. There's these practices organized around these games, and he doesn't want to go in, but his friends drag him in, and so he decides, I'm going to close my eyes, and I'm going to plug my ears, and I'm not going to watch it. But he catches a glimpse of it. And this is how Augustine describes it. He says, as soon as Olivia saw the blood, he at once drank in savagery and did not turn away. His eyes were riveted. He imbibed madness without any awareness of what was happening to him. He found delight in the murderous content and was inebriated by bloodthirsty pleasure. He was not now the person who had come in, but just one of the crowd which he had joined, a true member of the group which, he had, which had brought him. 
You see, these practices built up in a community which are ordered to the love of self above God, even to the sacrifice of God. These practices come around you and they, they have a formative impact. It's like an external reality in which you step onto this, uh, this it's like an escalator. If you, you step on, you're just going to go where they take you, in a sense. Uh, this, is, this is the reality of, of how liturgies work. It, it's not entirely um, that simple, but it is at least that reality. Now, these, these cities simultaneously exist, but we, uh, and I've, in our top, topic of the church, we discuss them in, in part, and we said that you can't conflate the church to the city of God and like your city of Dallas to the city of man. It's not that simple. But it is to say that um, certain times in history more reflect your city that you live in, more reflect the city of God than other times. And, uh, and sometimes they reflect much more of the city of man, but they're always current, they're, they're always existing together in, 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 one, uh, in one sense, okay, or another. So this, the city of, of man or the culture that uh, we live in can, can be more pervasive, it can be essentially winning the day more than you might want it to. Now, what is, what is culture? I, I think we need to step back. I keep on using the language of culture. I, I want to give you kind of a, I try to give you a working definition, then I'm going to kind of give a picture of it. Culture, uh, this is heavily shaped by the social theorist James Davison Hunter, who's uh, at the University of Virginia. And uh, he, he wrote a book called To Change the World, in which he describes how cultures are made and changed over time. He says, uh, this is my this is my summary of what he says because he says a lot of things. Uh, culture is a normative order by which we comprehend the story of our lives, our neighbor, and the world. This order is an or, or an infrastructure is developed within history through a dynamic relationship of institutions, ideas, and particularly elite individuals working within those institutions. In other words, culture is a thing that human humans build over many generations that orders our lives and makes meaning of the world. It, it, it imposes itself upon us. So we build them, but then all of a sudden they, they, they become, you know, in, in, a, in a sense, um, more powerful than us. Um, the, the, the institutions that we build take on a life of their own. They're dynamic. It's a thing. And so these... These cultures, again, can be ordered in good ways or bad ways. They can have a good end or a bad end. I want to give you an example of what I mean by this. There's, uh, one example is London's Millennium Bridge, which was opened in, 2000, uh, in the year 2000. And after it was built, some of them realized, I mean, people recognized there was some bit of a structural problem. It was basically wobbly. The, the, build, the, the, the bridge itself was, was swaying like crazy. And without pe pedestrian traffic, it stood still. But when people started to walk on this bridge, it started to sway. The more people walked, it swayed all the more. And, and to add the mystery to the strange reality, they couldn't quite figure out what was happening, what was, what was wrong with the structure. The, the videos that were taking of this bridge showed that the pedestrians, when crossing it, were walking in perfect step with one another. How could a disorganized group of strangers end up having the same kind of gait? Start, they started to kind of analyze that question. Researchers eventually found out that as pedestrians crossed the bridge, they had to alter their gait to keep in balance with the swaying bridge. If they didn't walk with the motion of the bridge, they would fall over. But the lateral force from their altered walking drove the bridge 
to swaying even more with more foot traffic. This is showing that the things that we can build end up ultimately imposing themselves on our practices. And they actually shape the gait of our steps such that we have to walk on them. This is, this is kind of the way cultures work. We might build them. It takes a long time through many generations, through institutions. And then all of a sudden they create a kind of an ecosystem in which inform and form us to act in particular ways. Such that when you step in certain cities, you kind of know what the norms are, what people deem as good and what people deem as bad and how you should behave in them unless you want to be a countercultural person, which is costly. Okay? All right, so if cultures are fundamentally shaped throughout history and they can be either good or bad or in times in different moments, um, simultaneously good or bad in various areas in various ways, then what is the story of our culture? Where are we? What cultural story are we are, is being imposed upon us? What is the liturgy of this story? These are questions we all ought to ask. Taylor Swift at a graduation uh, of NYU students in Yankee Stadium just a couple years ago uh, is, is said, said these words. It can be really overwhelming figuring out who you are to be and when. You are now, you are now and how, who, sorry, who you are now and how to act in order to get where you are to go. She said, I have good news for you. It's totally up to you. I have some terrifying news to you. It's totally up to you. See, Taylor Swift is speaking prophetically in this moment. She's telling us what the story of our cultural moment is. She is informing us that, in fact, everything depends on us to tell the story. The cultural norm, the practices that in reinforce it. In fact, we are the center of the story of our moment. And that is certainly true in Dallas, Texas. Robert Bella, who wrote a, a great book on the story of individualism in America, tracing its story called The Habits of the Heart, wrote these words, and these are in the back of your, um, these are also here on, on your page. It says, in most societies in world history, the meaning of one's life has derived to a large degree from a to a large degree from one's relationship to the lives of one's parents and one's children. The meaning of one's life for most Americans is to become one's own person, almost to give birth to oneself. Much of this process, as we, as we have seen, as he's argued, is negative. It involves breaking free from family, community, and in inherited ideas. Our culture does not give us much guidance as to how to fill the contours of this autonomous, self-responsible self, but it does point to two important areas. One is work, the realm par excellence of utilitarian individualism. The other area is lifestyle enclave, the realm par excellence of expressive individualism. He's saying that Ultimately, the story of America, the story of, of, of the West, is a story of moving uh, our, our understanding of self into a, a uniquely autonomous definition, and that we're responsible for conjuring up the meaning. That this is the liturgy that we live in. This is, this is the burden and responsibility of what it means to be a human, is you yourselves have to make meaning of your story. It's on you. 
completely on you. Good news and bad news. And the way you you are given to do this, as Bellow describes, is either through work or lifestyle enclave. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that. But what I want you to see in this story, in this history, is that this is uniquely baked into the American experience. As we said, the cultures change really over a long period of time, and it's baked into ideas and institutions run by particularly elites, and then it takes multiple, multiple generations. And so what, what it feels like sometimes is that cultures change like that. This, this story actually is saying that this is actually the, the maturation of a long history in America to reorder the society upon the self. Ralph Waldo Emerson described that the chief virtue of America is self-reliance, self-sufficiency. It is the case that you can read these stories. Uh, a number of, of works would be helpful. Charles Taylor's written a lot on it in Secular Age. Alistair McIntyre, After Virtue, Patrick Deneen, Why Liberalism Has Failed. Many people have been talking about this, but it is, in essence, baked into our American notions of freedom. You can see it in the American experiment. The European colonialists, they left their parents, they left their king, they left their, uh, you know, their, for many of them, their sense of religion, and they built a society on the liberty of the self. Now, it's, it's not that simple, and of course there's a complexity, and of course there's also borrowed capital of medieval Christendom that is still infused into the early days of America, but it's also the society in which you know, slavery comes to life, where we can understand and see our freedom as self-defined and whatever we want. So now when we get to 2023 and it feels like uh, this is a real burden for people and a real challenge for people, I, I want you to see the history of it. And for Christians, for you to take a deeper sense of the cultural analysis. There are many good things that have happened from this experiment in, in liberalism as it is classically, classically defined. Um, you know, we, we can see also, uh, you know, uh, things that are good like the abolition of slavery, the greater economic opportunities that come for people who are coming from lower class. So it's not all bad. There's voc vocational possibility, but it's also the case that um, we've experienced the erosion of family, the exploitation of the earth, and the profound disparity of wealth. There are a lot of things to be critical of classical liberalism, and the American experiment, okay? Let's look at how these things take shape in our current moment very concretely. I want to focus on three, power, money, and sex. Power. Power is now very much fund the fundamental impulse that, that we have to make ourselves Gods, the power of will to make ourselves gods and to tell the story for our existence, the self-making self. You think about the descriptions of God. Omnipotence is all power. Omniscience, all knowing, omnipresence, present to all. Look at the technologies that we build in our cultural moment. 
Just look, for example, at the smartphone. A smartphone exists uh, in, in such a way to give us all knowledge. You have everything you want at, the, at your fingertips, knowledge. It gives us great promises. You open up the maps, you see in it uh, this blue dot, which anchors the whole of your reality, and it's you. You literally are the center of the world. You, 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 you see how this plays on all of the omnis in the promises. You, you think about other technologies, technologies of plastic surgery, which give you the ability to change how God made you, to make you whatever you want to be in the individual expression of that. You look at the industrial agricultural promise, which always are fruitful, meaning you can create technologies to, 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 um, to transcend and push against the, limit, the limitations of, of the natural uh, given of a season of weather in various ways, such that it, it actually has ruinous impacts on our environment. You, you, you can think about the technologies of war. <laughs> think about the atom to, to show and express our great power, chemical warfare. You think about the, the euthanasia. Uh, I get to control when I die. I don't even, uh, you know, I want to even get into other subjects such that we have all kinds of sense. The things, the creature, sorry, the technologies that we build give you a window into our ideas about power. And, and this is what we're building. It's not exclusively this, but I do want you to see it. I don't want you to be naive to this. I want you to also see the root of individualism, which is anchoring these technologies. What about money? Jesus says we cannot serve God and mammon. We live in one of the wealthiest times in the history of the world. Dallas is one of the wealthiest cities in the history of the world. And there is a seductive promise embedded with money and mammon. I think one of the things that is so seductive about it is that it gives you the promise of abundance without dependence. That you can use your money to buy things which will tell the world who you are. I mean, many of the, the, the ways we use our money is all to make meaning of ourselves, to show the world what we want to be and who we want to become. It's the clothing you wear, the houses that you build. Robert Bella's quote, if we, if, we, um, if we have to make meaning of our lives and the way we do it is through our work, making of wealth and uh, through our lifestyle, lifestyle, then if we have a lot of money, we can like make a really great story for ourselves. There's a, there's a, a, a one of our colleagues, Jordan Griesbeck, running through um, uh, Austin where he used to live. There's this trail and there's this big sign on it, which says, live a great story. <laughs> With a lot of money, you can do that. And if you make a lot of money, you can, you can tell the world the great story of your identity. It's anchored, though, in the, the deep, deep-seated individualism that comes within capitalism, which plays on your individual choices in such a way that you are unencumbered, unencumbered to spend your money on anything that you don't want to. You have the complete control and autonomy to do with the money whatever you want. I mean, we, we, let's just name what, what circumstances we live in in Texas. This is a highly libertarian-oriented uh, state, both on the left and the right. When, when, when we have the ability to spend money in every way that we want to spend it, um, what do you think Jesus' commands on us 
what, what, what challenges are in front of us? When Jesus says it is easier uh, to, for, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Why, why is he saying that? It's because money gives us the illusion of control and power. And it is seductive. In Texas, we don't want anybody to mess with our property. We want the government to stay away from it. We want our neighbors to stay away from it. It's our money. That's not true in God's economy. All of it is God's. And in fact, he has a radical, radical command, in fact, on our lives to be incredibly generous with our money. To tithe 10%, to give. for In fact, if you look at the Hebrew, the tithe is far more than 10%. We don't talk about that. Um, that's how it's ordered and understood. But for the theonomy, it was far more like the, the tax system. And it was something more like 40%. I don't know what, uh, if there are any uh, theologians of the Old Testament exegete in here that could help me out. But it, it is far more, in fact. So God's command on our lives monetarily is far more substantial. And then sexuality. If, if again... You know, maybe that one pushes a little bit on my partisan right here. The sexuality is going to push really hard on the partisan left here. Because, friends, if, if, we are, um, if our lives are not our own, but they were bought by the cross of Christ, they were bought by the blood of Jesus, then our bodies are not our own. In fact, when Jesus commands, or when Paul talks about sexuality and honoring our bodies like a temple for the Holy Spirit, that's the verse he says, your bodies are not your own. And so some of the, uh, the drive right now sexually in, in, in the, the awake of the sexual revolution is, is to say that, in fact, our body, we can do whatever we want with our bodies. In fact, this is what freedom looks like. I get to control it. I'm in charge of my body. Jesus says, no, no, no. You belong to me. The Heidelberg Catechism gives a, is a great question, and, and often read at funerals. In fact, it was read at Brian Dunnigan's funeral this week, and it's a beautiful question. It says, what is your only comfort in life and death? The response, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Okay, when we think about our, sex, our sexual lives, and we think about the command for chastity, to be chaste, to let sexuality be um, a, a gift to be enjoyed in the context of marriage. This, this pushes on us culturally. It pushes on us. We should be uncomfortable with these commands. What we're getting to is that the kingdom of God is a countercultural community. The city of God exists in our moment in a way that at times might push against and really severely push against the city of man in our moment. It's not to say Dallas, and Dallas is a wonderful city that has wonderful things happening. It's not to say we should be you know, completely removed from the culture that we exist in, but we should be uniquely different in our city. We live as... Stanley Howell describes it, resident aliens of the kingdom of God in our, our moment. We were transferred from the dominion of darkness and brought into the kingdom of his beloved son, Jesus Christ. So we live as different people, as weird people, who in fact recognize that we belong to Jesus, to one another. His power is king. 
His kingdom is king for uh, uh, the way we spend our money and the way we use our bodies. That's just three emphasis. There's a lot of implications to what I'm trying to get to. We're going to talk about them on Wednesday night, so I hope you come. Let's go ahead and stop there and open it up for any questions. Yeah, thanks for saying that, Joel. Yeah, no, I mean, Jesus is not, um, he's unapologetic about who he offends at some level. Joel was saying that, uh, one, you hope that we will teach our children these things, and indeed we will, and we are. Um, and two, um, his prayer is that, these, uh, is that we take this all to heart in a unique way, even as we're offended and potentially the world offends us. There is a uniqueness about what we're called to be and do, um, and it is... Uh, it's different from our neighbors. That doesn't mean we don't love our neighbors. And at times, it's also, it's hard, it's demanding on, on congregants. But Jesus is, this is Jesus, his word. It's, it's uh, the good news about, uh, for me, is I can hide behind his word and let his words be the confrontation in all of our lives, as I know it is in my own experience. Because I, I, I don't love giving my tithe. I'll tell you that much. It's hard. It hurts. And I don't, uh, I don't always love being obedient in areas of, of, of all kinds of matters in my life. It's hard. But he commands me to because I'm, I'm made to live a different life, to be holy as he is holy. I think we have time for one more. Let's give one more. Okay. Thank you. Um, I've moved around a lot, lived in a lot of different states, and traveled out of country. I will say Dallas is particularly distinct to me. Um, particularly um, the church and her operation here and, and some of the other parts of the Bible Belt. Um, so I'm trying to formulate my question, and I, um, I guess then how do we assimilate into the kingdom of God while residing in a rather distracted and even nihilistic culture here. Yeah, great And question. then um, what makes the kingdom of God distinct in our lives, in our society, actually? Um, yeah, great, great question, uh, Joseph. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think there, um, we, we have to have countercultural liturgies, and that's part of the map. Like, that's what we're building right now. Part of the liturgies on the map, the practices that govern the people of God that are different are practices of prayer, of reading scripture, of being generous with our wealth. And it goes into our practices of hospitality to our neighbors, our orientation in that way, in our workforce to, to, um, to, to do what is called of us, but not to um, treat our bodies like machines and to, to, to be people of Sabbath rest. That's an alternative practice to not say yes to every sports team or yes to everything that you do. These are alternative practices that become a liturgy that tell a story to our neighbors and to ourselves to be people set apart, to be holy. And I think that's, a, that, that's exactly what we're trying to map out for us and talk about pretty openly. Um, um, but I really appreciate the question. It is a, uh, it's a lifelong practice, um, though. And um, I think that's probably all the time we have uh, for t this morning. As much as this, uh, if this is percolating a lot of thoughts, come to Wednesday night and have dinner because it's, uh, it's a continuation of this conversation. Let's pray. God Almighty, we thank you for the good work of, of delivering us from the dominion of darkness and transferring us into the kingdom of your beloved Son. Help us to be faithful to his kingdom and to live for him and his glory, even to the sacrifice, sacrifice of ourselves, so that you would be glorified. I pray that you would bless us and keep us through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. 
Thank you for listening to The Way of Christ, a path for spiritual growth. Join us next week for our final episode of Season 1 titled, Who's Coming? Baptism Renewal and Membership Covenant. Those in the Dallas area are invited to join us on Wednesday nights as we dive deeper into our weekly topic in a dynamic group discussion. This podcast is produced by Church of the Incarnation in Dallas, Texas. Our sound editor is Robert Nash. Our theme song is Raise a Voice by Emery. Follow us on Instagram at IncarnationDFW or on Facebook at Church of the Incarnation. For more information on our church, please visit our website, www.incarnation.org. Thank you for listening.